0: That's why death to God's people is a joy. Death is a limousine that takes you into glory and away from sin. Now, if your heart has never been to the point where it hates sin and you hate yourself because of it, you wouldn't enjoy heaven. But the thing that I look forward to the most with a a resurrected body is it won't sin. It can't sin. See, you and I cannot picture or even imagine that you or me, I'm thinking of myself now, but do you think about yourself? You can't imagine yourself in a body that didn't sin. Even if it was a resurrected body, when you try to comprehend you say, uh-uh, I know me too good. No, uh, how could that be? Well, you leave that up to the Lord. The scripture says that you will not sin. Nothing that enters heaven will sin. No sin can enter. And so we're going to really be changed. Right now, the Lord takes our desires to be perfectly sin-free, as if it was. But we know better than that what we are in reality. Well, let's talk this morning a little bit about the excellency of knowledge. Turn to Philippians 3.8. We're going to have here a verse that the Apostle Paul in this book of the Philippians happens to be just a beautiful book for starters. But when Paul weighs everything in the balance, he comes up with this one verse, Philippians 3.8. It says, Yea, doubtless, and I count all things but loss, for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord. You got it? All things but lost, just for the knowledge of Christ. For whom I have suffered the loss of all things and do count them but dung that I may win Christ. What's all things? Everything you got. Think being a Christian doesn't cost you? It costs you everything you got. And then you find out that everything you got isn't worth anything. Paul says it's just worth Dung. Oh, now that I got Christ, you have things, the Lord can bless your life, continue to bless your life, but you don't count anything here on earth but dung in comparison to Christ. And that's what being a Christian is. That's wanting Christ above all things. One thing the world seems united about is the need for education. The more you know about a subject or about your job, the better your chances of survival are in this world. We applaud those who suffer hardships in order to complete their education. Now, we know a few of them from our own congregation who have been struggling to get a college education. And our hats are off. Our, uh, I was going to say our condolences because there's been a lot of condolences along with the the glad tidings of they're just about finished, and we definitely know the hardship of an education. But uh, and and what is the good of our lifelong profession, except to someday retire and leave it to somebody else? That's the sum of all your hard work. You're going to quit and give it to somebody. Well, this morning, I want to call your attention to this one fact: the importance of divine knowledge in salvation. It is necessary that you must have a clear, correct view and an intelligent knowledge of the teachings of God's Word. Now, there's no other way about it. You've got to read, you've got to study, and nobody else can do it for you. Let me state it this way. There's nothing more important in this life than the knowledge of the truth as it is in Christ Jesus. Look at 1 Timothy 2.4. 1 Timothy 2.4. If you can turn quickly with me, okay. If not, jot the scripture down or just listen carefully. It says, Who will have all men to be saved and come unto the knowledge of the truth? There's a certain knowledge of the truth given in the scriptures and it's very necessary for you to be saved. If you want to be saved, you must give time and use the means to become acquainted with divine truth. Now, what a strange word in these modern times, saved. Almost as strange as lost. Why would anyone need to be saved? Well, you're traveling from earth to heaven, whether you know it or not. You're traveling from time to eternity, and there's no returning. God has provided a map to show you the way to heaven, and that map is God's word, the Holy Bible. Like when we went up to Miss Hales several weeks ago, we had to get out the map, because we're not quite sure where to turn. Well, the way to heaven is a straight and narrow, and you need a map to show you where not to turn, got it? The knowledge of spiritual things is our number one priority in Paul's prayer. Look at Ephesians 1.17. Ephesians 1.17. We have a congregation here where their Bibles are pretty much wore out. They should be from turning. Our people know the Scriptures. Verse 17, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give unto you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him. you got to learn. Now, the Bible says that God commands men to repent. Did you know that? Well, that's Acts 17.30. You can take a peek at that. We had it last week in our message on repentance. Acts 17.30 says so in the times of this ignorance God winked at but now commandeth all men everywhere to repent? You might as well say that's the eleventh commandment. Ten of them you know, here's another one. God commandeth all men to repent. But how can you repent when you do not know the character of God or the person of God whom you have offended? How can you repent unless you know the law you have broken? And how can you repent if you have a sin that you've committed unless you have a knowledge of the law and a knowledge of sin? See, salvation is faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. But tell me, how can you believe if you do not know whom to believe in? Take a look at Romans 10.14. Romans 10.14. Just before the 14th verse, we've had a few verses that, as part of what they call a Roman road, confess with your mouth, believe in your heart, you're saved. Well, very few people know that this chapter starts out toward the nation of Israel, same as so does chapter 11, and so does chapter 9, 9, 10, and 11. Paul's lamenting the nation of Israel. I've explained to you many, many times for a Jew to believe in his heart and to confess with his mouth, he's finished. He's finished with family, he's finished with religion, his job, his friends, everybody. He's out. He's an outcast. That means he does everything to the Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, take care of me. I confess you with my mouth. See, but Gentiles don't have to do that. Oh, yeah, I believe in Jesus, just like the little colored kids I was telling you about. Sure, I believe in Jesus. You got a chocolate bar for me? You see, it's much different. But most of these folks talking about the Roman road never get to verse 14. For in the first place, Paul is saying, how shall they call on him in whom they have not believed? That's number one. And how shall they believe in him of whom they have not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? He's saying, you know, the preacher's got to be saved. The preacher's got to know how God saves a sinner. He's got to come down as a lost sinner begging for mercy and know what it's all about. Where do you find those kind of preachers today? I'll tell you what, you don't find them very many places. God saving a sinner is such a mystery that you could go into uh, the seminary in New Orleans and probably not a person in the graduating class could tell you how God saves a sinner but he'll tell you how many chapters are in each book of the Bible and how many pages it is. He'll 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 give you all the history that you could possibly want to know, more than you'd ever know in your life, but he will not be able to tell you how God deals with a heart for salvation. That's the thing they throw out. They did it in Christ's time. The Pharisees and the Sadducees, they were the highest of the religious people, the best of the best on another level, another plane. He just called them hypocrites. They didn't know a thing about God dealing with a heart. Now, did we read Romans uh, ten fourteen? Yeah. All right. Now back up a little bit to Romans five eight. Romans five eight. But God commendeth His love toward us, and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Now, you tell me, how can you love a being whom you do not know? Therefore, you must search the Scriptures, for in them you have eternal life. That's what Christ said in John 5, 39. Search the Scriptures, for in them you think you have eternal life, but they are there to testify of me. In other words, if you can't find me in the Scriptures, no eternal life. Forget it. Christ is our life. He is eternal life. You cannot... Work your mind up to love Christ until you come to know him as he's lifted up in the scriptures. And that's the reason for having to search the scriptures to see what they say about Christ, not what somebody else does. In Ephesians 3.17, it says something about being rooted and grounded in love. Let's take a look at that. Ephesians 3.17. Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians. 317, that Christ may dwell in your hearts by faith, that ye being rooted and grounded in love, what's this rooted and grounded in love? Well, you must be rooted and grounded in the knowledge of what you want to love. Search divine truth to find out all you can about the person and work of Christ as set forth in God's Word. Now let's talk about some of the divine truths that you should know and understand. Number one, the moral character of God. He searches hearts. Did you know that? Turn to Jeremiah 17.10. Jeremiah 17.10. Some of you are thinking in your mind as you get there, oh, he ought to read verse 9. Well, we will later, okay? I'll come back to it. But verse 10 is going to tell you about God searching the heart. He says, I, the Lord, search the heart. I try the reins, even to give every man according to his ways and according to the fruit of his doings. Now this same almighty God is a God of love, a God of light, a holy God, perfectly righteous, and also a God of wrath against the wickedness and immorality of men. The Bible tells us that our God cannot lie. Now you think about it. He searches the heart. The holy God searches the heart. What's he find in your heart and mine? I'm glad he doesn't mark and keep track of our iniquities. I'm glad that our sins, past, present, and future, are wiped out by the blood of our Lord Jesus Christ. David said, if you should mark iniquities, who could stand? He couldn't. Our iniquities, God's people's iniquities, have been changed to the column of our Lord Jesus Christ where he is credited with our sin. He's taken the blame for our sin. He not only has done that in finality, he suffered the punishment through our sin. That's the big thing. We're not worried about the amount of sin or sin itself. The bad thing about sin is that the punishment that goes with it, that's what hurts. The punishment do sin, and that's what our Lord Jesus Christ took on him in our place. That's Titus 1-2 that says that we have a God that can't lie, that every word that he has given us in the Bible is a promise of blessing, or a threat of judgment that he hates sin, that he is a God of justice, that he cannot pass over or wink at one sin except in the person of a substitute. And that substitute person is his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Do you realize this holy, sin-hating God is the one who searches your heart and reads your mind? Oh, you didn't know he knew what you think? Yes, he does. Look at Psalm 139.2. Psalm 139.2. He knows what you think. He knows what you think before you thunk it. Got that? Our Lord never learns anything. Never learns anything new. He has known your thoughts from eternity. That's the power of our God. It says, He knows our thoughts afar off. How far? Before you were born. Back in eternity. He knows the thoughts that you and I would be thinking today. Psalm 139, 2. Thou knowest my down-sitting, mine uprising. Thou understandest my thought afar off. God searches the heart, and He reads your mind. Think you can get away with anything? No way. You can't get away with a thing. Our God is complete. He's a God of grace from which flows his mercy, and on the other hand, he's a God of justice from which flows his wrath and judgment. No individual can know the love of God without knowing the wrath of God. They both were displayed on Calvary's cross. The awakened sinner flees to Christ as his or her refuge from the wrath of God against their sin. They know they're guilty no innocent sinner ever gets saved it's always a guilty sinner and now that you know that god is holy and can't be bought off you must have an understanding of the law everyone has heard of the 10 commandments but do you know that they demand obedience of both heart and mind how do we know that well turn to matthew 5:28 give you just a little example matthew 5:28 I know this is much read and maybe very little talked about well let's just read it but I say unto you that whosoever looketh on a woman to lust after her hath committed adultery with her already in his heart now I didn't say that I read it the Lord Jesus Christ is the one that said that unchaste thoughts lustful thoughts are adultery okay that's why I say sin is an offence of both the mind and the body. Now that kind of changes your chances of keeping the commandments, doesn't it? The law demands from every son of Adam a sinless, perfect obedience from the beginning of life to the end of life and every thought, word, and deed. There are no loopholes in the law. It sure doesn't hold out any hope of mercy. None whatsoever. There is no mercy held out in the law. Ezekiel eighteen four says, The soul that sinneth, it shall die." Not just the body dies and goes to sleep. It's talking about the second death, the being cast into the lake of fire forever and ever. You look squarely into the law, and you will certainly understand John three eighteen. Take a look at it. John three eighteen. See, the law condemns everybody because they can't keep it. But if you don't believe that God's law holds, our Lord Jesus Christ here is going to give you another reason. He that believeth on him is not condemned. Got it? Believers aren't condemned. But he that believeth not is condemned already because he hath not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. Unbelief cast you into hell but why do you not believe because you have Adam's nature you have a sinful depraved nature that doesn't want to believe so if you believe it's because God has been gracious to you has given you a gift several gifts a gift of repentance and a gift of faith it's the only way you come to Christ repent and believe on Christ got it Now we can talk about sin or the evil of sin. The meaning of sin is all but forgotten, being buried by tradition, education, fashion, and religion. Even religious leaders think very lightly of sin. The modern-day preacher in the biggest churches would tell you, just tell God that you're sorry and live the best you can, you've got to remember, folks, that God hates sin. It was sin that turned Adam and Eve out of the Garden of Eden. It was sin that drowned out the world in the flood. It was sin that destroyed Jerusalem and scattered his chosen people over the face of the earth. It is sin that has made this world one large cemetery. And it is sin that crucified our Lord Jesus Christ at Calvary. Look at First Peter 2.24. We went through the book of First Peter some years ago. But every time I come back to any of the scriptures, they're just as new as can be. This is talking about our Lord Jesus Christ. Going to Calvary for you and me, who his own self, a person, the God-man, bear our sins in his own body on the tree, that we being dead to sin should live unto righteousness by whose stripes ye were healed. Cross the page to 1 Peter 3.18. For Christ also hath once suffered for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God being put to death in the flesh, but quickened by the Spirit. What the Lord has taught me in that one is that if you have never seen yourself unjust, you have never been saved. There's only two two characters talked about in that verse. One is a just one, and one is unjust. And it says that the just one suffered for those who were unjust. Every individual the Lord Jesus Christ saves is an unjust individual. You ever see yourself unjust? Or have you always been nice? Have you always been good? Or have you always thought that maybe the Bible's wrong? Maybe the heart isn't deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. I want to tell you, when you get on your knees in front of the Lord Jesus Christ begging for mercy... You're going to see just how unjust you are. You're going to see just how dishonest you are. Probably the first thousand times I asked for mercy, I was really holding something back, just hoping to get some mercy quick and keep on with something that wasn't 100%. It wasn't trusting Christ. You're going to find that you're unjust. Now, what makes mankind so prone to sin? You see, that is something else you must have a knowledge of. A clear understanding of your original and inherent depravity of your heart. It's easy for some to see their sins. They're so obvious. But very few come to see the source of their sin. It's their own heart. Look at Mark 7.20. I'm going to show that to you in the scriptures. Mark 7.20. This may be news, might be brand spanking new to people that have been reading the Bible all their life. They read over it, they never stop to examine the words. And he said, this is the Lord Jesus Christ said, That which cometh out of the man, that defileth the man. For from within, out of the heart, out of the heart of men proceed evil thoughts, adulteries, fornications, murders thefts, covetousness, wickedness, deceit, lasciviousness, an evil eye, blasphemy, pride, foolishness. All of these things come from within and defile the man. What are we talking about? We're talking about your heart. Did you know it was full of those things? It is. Those things, even in salvation, when the Lord Jesus Christ gives you a new heart and a new nature, Those things will remain either in chains or half bound or half free until the day you quit breathing. But they're all there. Every single one of them are there. Got it? That's why the desire to have that new resurrected body is the most wonderful thought and promise in the Scriptures. Having a new body to be able to see the Lord Jesus Christ. Because you and I couldn't see him in our bodies. We could not stand before him in our sinful, polluted bodies that we have now. Need a new body. Now, the heart is a big storehouse of iniquity. People have a misconception of the human heart. Sometimes a person can live an awful life, and yet someone else will say, Oh, but he's got a good heart. And the teachers in school, some of the kids can be so awful, Oh, but there's got to be a little bit of good in them You and I have heard that from one end to the other. There's a little bit of good in everybody. Get out of here. The heart is deceitful above all things, desperately wicked. That's the heart of every individual on the face of this earth. The good that you see in them is because God has restrained the evil that's in them. And it's wonderful that people act good and have a righteousness that everybody should have. What I mean is everybody should treat one another like human beings and be nice forgive one another, do things kindly to one another, but they don't count toward your salvation. The nicest person, the sweetest, most wonderful acting person is just as guilty before God as a sinner as the bum on the street because their nice things don't count toward salvation and that's the tendency of every individual heart is to think... Look what I have done, certainly God must count this to my good. Well the scriptures say in Isaiah sixty-four six, all of our righteousnesses are as filthy rags. Now, men sin because they love sin. And the love of sin is in their hearts. Look at John three nineteen. Very interesting scripture. You see, John 3.16 is just a couple of verses above it. Everybody knows about John 3.16, God so loved the world, which they think that God loves everybody in the world, which again is not quite the case. John 3.19, this is the condemnation. That light has come into the world and men loved darkness rather than light because their deeds are evil. What men? Everybody. Pretty young girls, boys, children, old men, young men, old ladies. Men. means mankind. Love darkness rather than... They like it. And that's why salvation is not just a forgiving of your sins, but an addition of a new nature. Your heart's got to be regenerated. God has to give you a new heart. And that's what he says in Ezekiel 36, 26. Take a look at that one and mark it so you know where it is. When we talk about God giving a new heart, you'll remember Ezekiel 36. 36, 26, a new heart. Also will I give you, and a new spirit will I put within you, and I'll take away the stony heart out of your flesh, and I'll give you an heart of flesh. Okay. You may ask, how can that be done? It is by the Lord God of heaven searching your heart. By letting the light of the glorious gospel of Christ shine into your heart, giving you the knowledge of your nature in the face of Jesus Christ. 2 Corinthians 4, 3. Second Corinthians 4, verses 3 through 6. When you read these scriptures, as you're reading them right now, Think of it as God talking to you as an individual. This isn't me just reading these things to be reading them. When I read them, God's talking to me. When you read them, he's talking to you. This is your book. This is my book. And these are personal messages to you. But if our gospel be hid, it's hid to them that are lost. What gospel? Oh, we're telling you how God saves a sinner. About the sovereignty of God, the depravity of the human heart the sacrifice of Christ, the work of the Holy Spirit. These are all parts of the gospel. If these things are hid to you, you're lost. In whom the God of this world hath blinded the minds of them which believe not, lest the light of the glorious gospel of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine unto them, as we were just talking about. If God shines into your heart, hey, greatest thing ever happened to you. For we preach not ourselves, but Christ Jesus the Lord, and ourselves your servants for Jesus' sake. For God who commanded the light to shine out of darkness has shined in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. There's our knowledge again. (coughs) Excuse me. Knowledge is so important, so very, very important. Then you can understand John when he said, Behold the Lamb of God. Then you can see that Christ was made sin for us. And now you can see that he died, the just for the unjust. Well, we read that scripture. Look at 2 Corinthians 5.21. While you're real close, turn over one page. For he hath made him, who, who hath made who? The Father hath made Christ, to be sin for us, who knew no sin. Why, does they, why do they always put that in there is that necessary to have that set off with commas who knew no sin of course it is our Lord Jesus Christ sin never touched him the guilt and the punishment of our sin was upon him that's what it means being made sin for us it was imputed to him never touched him but charged to his account just like his righteousness is imputed to us and charged to our account but are you righteous like the Lord Jesus Christ? Perfect? Uh Uh-uh. No, it's on your account. You're gonna be like that one day when you got a new body, but not now. See, who knew no sin? They just want you to make sure you understand that when it says he was made to be sin, made to be our sin bearer, that we might be made to righteousness of God in him. All right, now the sinner has just two prayers to pray. Lord, open my heart and show me myself. And then, Lord, show me Christ as my Lord and Savior. Do you see the absolute necessity of knowledge on the part of the awakened sinner? Let's go over them once again. The knowledge of God and his moral character. Number two, the knowledge of the law and its justice. Number three, the knowledge of sin and its power and its hell. Number four, the knowledge of your own heart. There's Jeremiah 17.9. See, I told you we're going to save it for later. Jeremiah 17.9 goes like this. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? Whose heart? Everybody's. Chinese, Japanese, Indians, Americans, Englishmen, Frenchmen, Germans, you name it. Every individual born upon the face of this earth is born with a heart that's deceitful above all things, desperately wicked. I know it don't sound good. You might not like it. What are you going to do about it? It's here in God's word. He said it. You've got to knuckle under to God and thank him for the information he's given you. That's great information to know that. And number five, and then the knowledge that you must come to know Christ as your Lord, Savior, and substitute as your sin offering. And by now you know that you have to take time out to get saved. Well, that's one thing people don't understand. Somewhere down the line, you've got to take time out and leave all your friends go, all your relatives go, Everything let go and come to Christ. You see, that's what makes coming to the Lord Jesus Christ one of the hardest things in all of your life. Your commitment is to Him forever. And there's got to be a time when you start and set your foot down in your mind and say, I'm coming to Christ now. I don't care who likes it, who doesn't like it, what happens. Everybody can go by the wayside. I'm coming to Christ. Oh, you keep working. You keep living. You keep loving. But nobody gets in your way of coming to Christ. Nobody gets in your way of hearing services or reading the scriptures. That's how tough it is. Some folks say the easiest thing in the world is to get saved. All you got to do is tell Christ you're sorry and tell him you accept him and you're saved. Come on. I'm talking about a lifelong commitment. He must teach you that you may come to know him whom to know is life eternal. The death of Christ is intended to deliver us from the power of sin as well as from the punishment of sin. Look at Titus 2.14. Titus 2.14. All the T's are together. Thessalonians Timothy Titus who gave himself for us that he might redeem us from all iniquity and purify unto himself a peculiar people zealous of good works. But we wonder when is this purification ever going to be complete? My, it looks like I take one step forward and two steps backwards all the time. Well, I tell you, when you quit breathing, you'll be purified. God will take you home when he's ready. But death is when we finally quit sinning. Now, the final purpose of salvation or mercy to a sinner is to restore that soul in the image and holiness of God. The design of the gospel is to change the stubborn, selfish, worldly, self-willed, wicked heart of the fallen creature into the image of the Son of God and make him like him that is holy. Look at Ephesians 1.4. Ephesians 1.4, where Paul mentions that in his introduction. He says, According as he hath chosen us in him, before the foundation of the world that we should be holy. Uh Uh-huh. And without blame before him in love. How can that be? Only because the righteousness of the Lord Jesus Christ is imputed. You try to do it yourself. Hey, no way. You know that. So you have to thank God every day for imputation. You have to thank the Lord Jesus Christ for keeping the law perfectly for you how often I think that the dying on the cross was the easy part. But how about keeping the law perfectly for 33 years in word, thought, and deed? 33 years, never sinned. You can't even comprehend it. You say, ah, oh, no. Yeah, that's right. You've got to believe it. God will give you faith to know that your substitute is perfect. Boy, I love him for that. Love him for that. No. While you are learning, obtaining knowledge, you're being drawn by the Holy Spirit. You don't know that. You feel you're going the other way most of the time. Remember the prodigal son? When he was a great way off? That's all the closer any sinner ever gets in his own mind, a great way off. The Father, the Lord Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit, make up that distance in an instant. But look at John 6:44. I want to show you that the Holy Spirit draws you He's not letting you alone. You think you're being chastised. You think you're having a hard time. You think you're going through hell here on earth. You're being drawn to Christ. John 6.44, No man can come to me except the Father which has sent me draw him. Not draw your picture. Draw you like a magnet. Slowly, gently, surely. And you notice a magnet doesn't draw gold. A magnet doesn't draw silver, but it draws little weak, nasty iron filings. That's all we are compared to gold and silver's iron filings. But boy, does it ever draw that. And he draws that old heart made up of iron, an old hard iron heart to himself. How does the Father do it? By the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the instrument that God the Father uses to draw you. It's the work of the Holy Spirit to bring the awakened sinner to Christ. That work includes quickening or giving spiritual life to the sinner. He's made alive to his ruined condition. And he's made alive to the fact that Christ died for him. And the reason for the drawing. You know there's a reason why God draws a sinner? I want to show that to you as we close. Jeremiah 31.3. There's a reason for everything that God does in the sinner's salvation. But why does he save him, period? Here's your reason. The Lord hath appeared of old unto me, saying, Yea, I have loved thee with an everlasting love. Got it? Can you measure it? When did it start? You don't know. Everlasting? started back in eternity. Time started somewhere in eternity. There was a lot of eternity before, and there's a never-ending eternity at the end. We don't know this, but everlasting means no beginning, no end. And as far as God is concerned, he's loved his people with an everlasting love. And then he says, Therefore, all oh, because of that love I had for you back in eternity, therefore with loving kindness have I drawn thee. How does he do that? By his Holy Spirit. No man cometh to me, but the Father draw him. Boy, the Bible's great, isn't it? Aren't you glad you have knowledge, a little knowledge? You know, we got a little knowledge. I'd like to have a lot of knowledge, but all you need is enough knowledge about Christ to know that he's your substitute, you're the sinner, and he'll save you. That's it. And Christ invites all who hear the gospel to come to him. That's Matthew 11:28. 28. I might as well let you see the gospel invitation We'd never give an invitation from the pulpit. Never. It's not my invitation. The invitation is in a message, and the invitation comes from the Lord Jesus Christ. And here it is, Matthew eleven twenty eight. His words. I'll read them to you. Come unto me, or ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. Isn't that great? It's great for people that have a burden. It's wonderful for people that are heavy laden. Anybody else invited? I don't see anybody else in there. I'm looking all around. I just see those that labor and those that are heavy laden with sin. Okay? Not with money. Not with business problems. Not with marital problems. Not with educational problems or political problems. Those that have a burden of sin. And he'll give you rest. What a wonderful rest that is when that burden falls off. Just take my yoke upon you, learn of me. Learn. Here we come again with education. Learn about Christ. I'm meek and lowly in heart, and ye shall find rest unto your souls. not that great? You're invited to come to the Lord Jesus Christ because he invited you. I'm his messenger. I'm telling you that he said Come. You come as a lost sinner asking for mercy, he'll give it to you. You don't come any other way. You don't come saying, oh, I accept you. How often I have given you the illustration. They bring a prisoner in before the judge, shackled, bound. He's a horrible prisoner, committed every felony there is to do, committed murder, committed adultery, Hates the judge and his family. And the judge is about to sentence him. And he says, I accept you. I'm sorry. Now you've got to let me go. Hey. You see what I'm talking about? You see how ridiculous it is to say that you have accepted Jesus? The judge has got to accept you. And the judge has got to know by reading your heart knowing you and hearing your cry that you need his mercy he don't need your acceptance you've got to have his mercy let's bow our heads father we ask thy blessing upon this simple gospel message this morning bless our fellowship bless all of those that came here today to hear the gospel may not just to hear oh please may they learn May they understand that their soul is in the same fix as the one who's speaking to them. It's a soul created for eternity. The soul of every child here is just as valuable, as important as anybody else's, as mine, as anybody who's ever preached the gospel, as Peter, James, and John, or anybody who had a soul. Every soul has an eternal worth more than all the world. Lord make that real to the hearts of my people here today and those that'll hear by tape, we pray in the name of our Lord Jesus. Amen. You're all dismissed and go to the